You know, I consider myself uh, becoming a Christian my freshman year in college. It was the first time that I ever heard the gospel and accepted Christ into my life. Now, prior to that, I did go to church. Uh, in fact, I went to the private school that was attached to our church. So I had some association with Christianity, if you will, some familiarity with it um, before I went off to college. But as I have to guess goes on in every grade school, students take on roles within the class. Maybe you've seen uh, the end of high school, how they have those uh, those mock senior awards, you know, those are going to be most likely to be present or class jokester or something like that. Each class has, say, a clown, the jock, the prima donna, the Einstein, whatever it might be. And for many years, for probably about seven years, I inherited as my role the bully target. And that leaves an impact on a person, but not always how you might expect. Now, sure, there was uh, certainly some impact left, you know, punches and thefts and insults um, didn't go, didn't exactly leave the best mark, but it gave me a passion, you know, certainly to learn how to handle myself. But part of the part that comes to mind, uh, as I look back and, and reflect on that whole experience, even 30 years later, when I am driving by the school, uh, it's kind of on the very, very tail end when we are returning back to Chicago and uh, we get off the highway and we're, we're driving to uh, my family's house and we pass by the school. And the thought that always comes to mind, even now, 30 years later, was the principal. An ordained religious leader in the church. A little bit of context. And yet what amongst the role that I got to play was the response when it came to uh, trying to, to deal with the problem that I'd be going through? Not my problem. They're not stealing my gym clothes, so why should I care? Maybe you know somebody who's had a similar hurt in the church. Maybe you've even experienced it yourself, either recently or a long time ago. You know, it's one of those things that time having gone past rarely seems to make a difference. And, you know, I know some here in our own church that have been hurt by others, and they end up joining our community and have been a great part of it, and we're glad to have them with us and, and celebrate the fact that we are a community together, though at the same time we mourn how the situation played out. You know, we don't want to be, we don't look to be a church that, hey, get hurt by another church and then come join us. That's not how we like to have it play out. But sometimes it does, and we celebrate those who haven't quit the church and haven't quit Christian community and choose to join us and, and be a part of what we're doing. You know, maybe you're close to somebody who has been hurt far worse than the sort of hands-off attitude or bruises that I talk, just talked about. And if so, there's a place where I get the pain and the questions that come out of it. You know, and I, even if, out of my experience, I left a career to go become a church leader, almost to wear the same uh, identity as that ordained leader who was hands-off and, hey, not my problem. You know, Maybe you've talked to a friend about Jesus or about church, and you've had this idea thrown in your face. What about those who have been hurt by the church? Why should I come to be a part of a church, to be part of a community that has this, this stain on it of those who have done bad in the past in the name of the church or in the name of Christianity? 
What does a church have to say for itself? How do we ask people to love or trust a God whose children have done all sorts of wrong? All I can say is I attempt to do so to give a message here, hopefully of hope. I attempt to do so with full respect for the pain that people feel and for the fact that there are many who have been hurt in the context of a church that have experienced the pain I will never understand. And I'm very thankful for that. I understand that. And I get that an explanation is not going to heal pain. And I'm certainly not interested in offering excuses. But in the exploration, I believe we can break down the wall that separates us from the one who can bring healing to those very situations and those very people that have been hurt in any kind of context. So let's check it out in our scripture for today. And I'll draw from a couple different ones or a couple different stories, but this is where I'm going to start. Jesus' words in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and the fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about here, they are the religious leaders, put very simply. They are the experts in the law. They are the ordained people up front, if you will. You'd expect these would be the people who get it right. But Jesus spends the rest of this chapter absolutely slamming them for being, for being hypocrites, for practicing hypocrisy, for not having unity between what they say and what they do. They're not doing what they teach. Or more specifically, they're putting heavy loads of laws and directives on the people that are under them, and yet they're not willing to carry those heavy loads themselves or obey those laws themselves. So I want to hone in as we're exploring this passage on one verse, verse 3, where Jesus says, Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Now, Jesus is, is making a distinction, and, and here's the point. Even though the Pharisees' actions are all kinds of whacked and, and disunity to what they're saying, there's validity to their teaching, Jesus is saying. Jesus is making that distinction. Or to put it into a modern colloquialism, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater as you are listening to the Pharisees and their, and their teaching. It's the very phrase, actually, that a professor gave me in seminary as I processed the whole introduction story that I gave. Now, let's take it to a higher level here. If the Pharisees are religious leaders and the Pharisees are calling, causing harm to people 
to put it simply, as far as what they're doing. Can one blame the God that they teach about for the pain that they cause? That kind of becomes the question of the day. Especially if we take joy in the thought, or Christians at least, take joy in the thought that God is in control. Or to put it into a modern parlance or a modern example, should we force parents to answer for the stupid that their adult children do? Because, hey, if human beings do foolish things, they have parents. People have parents, whether or not their children do foolish things. But should we call the the parents to task because the adult child does something foolish, whatever that might be? It's It's a question to ask. So how about a story where one could very easily attempt to blame God for the evil that happens. And uh, I'm going to be taking this idea and can the explanations from it from R.C. Sproul's book, Does God Control Everything? If you want to read uh, some some good stuff in very uh, layman's language, he's an outstanding writer, R.C. Sproul. Um, And he takes the idea in this book, he, he draws from the story of Job. Okay, now, Job is a good man by every, uh, even by the, the harshest critic. would look at this guy and think, this is a good guy by all accounts. He's a faithful guy. He's a blessed guy. You know, he has um, many children and lots of wealth and all that sort of stuff. And Satan comes to God and says, you know what? Job is only faithful to you because you're good to him, God. Because you have been blessing him with all kinds of abundance. You take those blessings away from Job, God, and I guarantee he'll curse you. And God says to Satan, all right, you're on. Now, what's God's purpose in this whole ordeal? His purpose, his goal is to vindicate Job, a good person, from against the accusations that Satan's throwing at him. Saying, you know what? I bet if I take the blessings away, he will still be faithful to me. He's going to vindicate Job. He's faithful because he's faithful, not because I bless him. And as this whole thing is going on, God allows these Chaldean thieves to steal Job's camels in Job 1.17. Now, this is just one of the things that happens in this whole contest between God and Satan. Uh, but it's one that, that makes sense as far as the, the sake of illustration. Now, the thieves, you know, all they care about is free camels. They don't care about the celestial battle going on or anything like that. They're just like, hey, I'm envious of the fact that Job has a lot of camels, a lot of livestock. I want some. I'm going to steal it. So that's their motivation. That's their MO as far as how they fit into this story. All Satan wants is to get Job to curse God. All God wants is to vindicate Job against the accusations, to vindicate his holiness. So point of this, you have one event. Job is going to lose his camels, his livestock. You have three agents. You have the Chaldean thieves. You have Satan and you have God. You have three different purposes behind their goal in this story. Okay? So, the question becomes, did God sin against Job for his place in this story, in this episode? Did God break some requirement that he was... um, required to always protect Job from losing his camels. No, he didn't. God, as much as he blessed Job, God with grace, he had every right to repeal that grace and the and the blessings for his holy purposes, even if we don't understand exactly what those purposes are. 
and his purposes in this case are to vindicate Job and to vindicate his holiness. Now, was the theft right in any sense for people to come in and, and steal Job's property? I don't believe so. And if I were in Job's place, I'd certainly naturally feel angry about the whole situation. But here's the, the tweak. It'd be anger against the thieves, not against God. Here's the good thing, I believe. And the, and the place where we can still find hope is that the validity of Christianity is based on Christ, not on Christians. Let me say that again. The validity of Christianity is based on Jesus Christ, not on Christians. That very Jesus Christ who understands the pain brought on by his own people doing evil. How can I say this? Well, let's look at uh, one of the last episodes that Jesus faces as his story, as his ministry kind of starts to build to its climax. Now, Jesus had 12 disciples that followed him uh, throughout his, his three years of ministry. Judas Iscariot was one of those 12. Called by Jesus, walked with Jesus, served with Jesus. And Jesus loved and served Judas the same way he loved his closest follower, John. Judas was one of the twelve, the core of Jesus' group. And what evil did Jesus' own follower do? He started the chain of events that led to Jesus himself facing a gruesome crucifixion, a gruesome death. Judas betrayed Jesus to the authorities, which started Jesus being arrested, Jesus being tortured, Jesus being tried, the mock trial by, by any stretch, and ultimately put on a cross to face human death. Now, do, here's the thing, and I'm going to make a parallel between you know, how we blame God for the, the foolishness that Christians do. Do we blame Jesus for the act of his follower? Do we blame the historical person, Jesus Christ, for the act of the person who followed him, Judas? Do we blame Jesus for allowing the betrayal that would lead to his death? Now, as a believer or not, we can look at that and go, no. We wouldn't blame Jesus because Judas betrayed him. No more than we blame a rape or a murder victim for what happened to them. But here's the thing. When we blame God for the hurt that goes on in the church, as painful as it, as it can be and as real as it can be, we point the finger at the one who chose to enter into our pain, to experience it for himself, so that he, in the, only, in the way only God can, could bring us through it. See, honestly, growing up, I thought I would have had every reason to blow God off for how the church leaders that I knew acted. You know, if they were representing God, as far as my experience, and I saw how, them, how they behaved and how they responded to somebody who needed help, I'd looked at that and gone, you know, I have every reason to blow this Christianity thing off. And the irony is, it's because of how they acted that I'm here trying to share hope with you. It's because of how they acted that I have a passion for trying to help people who are going through those kinds of struggles. It's amazing how God can work, how God can redeem and, and bring somebody through that to ultimately have some good purpose. So this week, I want you to pray for those who are hurt in the context of a church. 
I know there's, you know, oftentimes there's nothing we can do to minimize the pain or to minimize the hurt and we can't heal it. We can't say some magic thing. And certainly I can't say magic things in front of people or, or on camera or something like that. That's going to make that pain go away. And there's no denying that it happens. You know, so such people, they need our prayers. Certainly they need our, us willing to understand that they are hurt, but we pray that they might find healing, even redemption from whatever happened, that they might be able to see like Job did, like Joseph did in another episode where he is facing things that if Job, that if Joseph knew that God had allowed this sort of stuff that, to happen to him, that it happened. I mean, he has a, a story probably just as bad as, uh, as Job did. And yet God was able to redeem that and do so much good out of it that when he faced his, the people who did bad to him, he said, you know what? You call you wanted all this bad stuff for evil, but God intended it for good. And God was able to bring good out of it. So we pray that they might find healing, even redemption from whatever it is that happened. Even if now they blame the very God who can bring them life. You know what? God's not afraid of our anger. God's not afraid of our hurt. God loved us enough to step into that pain so that he could help, so that he could be the one who relieves that pain from us and brings us back to life. Let's pray together. God, it is truly amazing how you work, sometimes, oftentimes, in spite of your followers. So please, transform the hearts of your followers that we might be ones who bring honor to you in the way we treat others. Bring healing to those who maybe even came to you and and came to church or came to church leaders and got burned. Bring healing to them. Bring forgiveness to their hearts. Bring us all closer to you to experience the life that you gave yours so we could have it. All this we pray in your son's name the one who experienced that pain so he could help take it from us. Amen.